You are now listening to the November 17th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. everyone. Welcome to our program, The Attributes of God. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. When you think of something powerful, what comes to your mind? A fast car? A rocket launching to the space station? A favorite superhero from a movie? Well, today we are going to learn about the omnipotence of God, about His strength and power. Last week, we learned that omni means all, when we learned about the omnipresence of God. So today, we are going to learn that potent means power. God is omnipotent, omnipotent. He is all-powerful. In the King James Version of Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, John writes, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. In the New American Standard Bible that we use for this ministry, omnipotent is replaced with almighty. God is referred to as almighty 58 times in the English Scripture, and the word is only used for God. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. God is speaking of himself and says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Notice in this verse that Creator God is woven into Omnipotent God. God uses His power effortlessly. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, all God had to do was speak the words, and there was light. In fact, throughout the whole creation process in chapter 1, God spoke the words, and everything came into being. There was no physical work where God would become tired or weary by the fifth or sixth day. And the only reason he rested was because he was done creating. He was finished. Puritan scholar Matthew Mead said, Power is in God originally, and he gets it from no one, for it is in and of himself. Because he is omnipotent, it means he can do anything, Nothing is impossible for God or too difficult for God. Think of Sarah in Genesis chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. God said to Abraham, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, 
Advanced in age, Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Now we all know that God was faithful to his word, and the next year Isaac was born. God can make a way when there doesn't seem to be a way. So any burdens you may be struggling with, they are not too difficult for God. Look at the power of God as he took care of the Israelites in Exodus. When they came to the Red Sea with Pharaoh's men chasing them, it seemed like a doomed situation. But our omnipotent God parted the sea and they crossed over. When the Israelites were thirsty, God told Moses to strike a rock and water gushed forth and the river followed them for 40 years. When they ran out of food they brought from Egypt and were hungry, God sent them manna from heaven. No situation is too difficult for God. He is all-powerful, omnipotent. His power took care of the Israelites, and his power can take care of you. As I close this program for today, I want you to think about Sarah and the Israelites. God can meet our needs and help us through any trial, no matter how overwhelming or impossible to overcome it may be. And we can believe God's promise that with the same omnipotent power that raised Jesus from the dead, God will also raise us from the dead and give us victory. Thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to speaking with you again next week. God bless you all. Goodbye.
Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delf and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delf and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Over the past several months, we've been talking about trust and we've discussed the issues that come with trust. We've examined how forgiveness and trust are two sides of the same coin. We've analyzed how we must rethink the way that we think about trust, and we've also discussed how there is a process to regaining and rebuilding trust. And this week, we continue our conversation about that process. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delf, are the authors of the book, Learning How to Trust. And all this material that we're talking about comes from this book. So today we're going to learn how to identify that idol in your life, or what the authors call dragon eggs. We'll also discuss the four stages of Christianity. So let's get started. Here's Polly Heller. We have a chapter in the book called Only You Can Prevent Dragon Fires, a dozen lessons from dragon eggs. And the first one is that you need to identify your dragon eggs. So that's getting to the root of some of the lies that you tell yourself and recognizing how they're affecting your life. And I would find myself in sort of inexplicable conflict with Alan early in our marriage. And I had to recognize that I had dragon egg thinking. I had lies in my life that I was applying to Alan. And for instance, my dad didn't like to get up off the couch and help my mom. And later I learned my dad had emphysema. He was always tired but when he was lying on the couch and my mother would ask him to do something he didn't want to help her he didn't 
jump up to help her carry things in from the car. He wasn't somebody who would jump up and offer to help. Well, I applied that to Alan that I didn't think Alan would want to get up off the couch and help me. So I wouldn't ask him to help me because I didn't want to be rejected and have him tell me, no, I don't want to do that. I would just think, well, he doesn't want to help me, so I'm not going to ask him to help me because Alan doesn't like to help. And so I was telling myself a story I was, and applying it to Alan, making a, a pre-judgment of him based on a lie based on an observation that I had made as a child and then carrying it over and applying it to Alan. So those that's just one of those judgments and generalizations that you carry forward in life and you go on and nurture and then you end up hiding them. Uh, The next one is why have you hidden your dragon eggs? I end up feeling guilty for the judgments that I've made, so I don't express them. I don't let him know that I think he's a lazy, good for nothing. <laughs> Not exactly. I would you think Polly <laughs> would say that, Ed? I'm shattered. Yeah, I just yeah, got to go, go see another counselor. You're, yeah, I mean, he's learning a lot about you. <laughs> Fortunately, well, that's not the way you are most of the time. That's right. If I'm afraid of being discovered as not being a good wife, that somebody's going to learn, (laughs) that Alan's going to see that I don't have a generous heart or whatever, I'm going to hide that. And here's one of the things. It festers, it grows, it ends up being this big thing. Tell them that, I think that story of your little plant dream was interesting. Oh. Because that was like this whole thing, this illustration of hiding dragon egg and right um one night i had a dream that um there was just a circle on the ground uh, that was sort of defined by stones around it and it, it was just all kind of dead nothing growing inside of it and then a little plant started to grow up in the middle of it and i thought oh, I need to water this plant so it can live. And I'm watering this plant and watering this plant, and it's it's growing up, and it's getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> and the next thing I know, it has just overtaken me, and I'm panicking in my dream. And the, the next thing I was doing, I'm hearing this voice telling me, kill it, kill it, like I had to kill it. And so then I took my shovel, and I'm smashing it and hacking at it. Well... I had asked a a group of friends, our our home fellowship group at the time, what do you think this dream (laughs) means? And a very wise person in the group said, you have things in your life that you are nurturing. And initially, they seem to be beautiful, and you want to water them, and you want them to grow. But the next thing you know, they're taking over your life, and you have to kill them. And... There are so many things that become like that. The thought that came to my mind initially was relationships with other women sometimes. We had a neighbor across the street from us many years ago who was very needy. They moved into the house, and she said she was a Christian, and she 
wanted to talk to me about church and <laughs> about God, but she started to take over my life. And one time she showed up on the on the doorstep at our front door and she was black and blue, her husband had beaten her. This had gotten way out of hand. It was beyond my ability my to help. Ability. <laughs> yeah, right. But she was consuming my attention and my emotional stamina. I was spending a lot of time thinking about her and praying for her and to the detriment of my relationship with my husband and my children. So sometimes our good intentions trying to help somebody, it starts out as a good thing, but if God isn't the one who is controlling it, if he's not the one who is giving his empowering to it, then that good thing can become a like a man-eating, flesh-eating Venus fly trap or you know something that's <laughs> consuming me instead of something that where God's using me to right. be and in the story of Amanda you know caretaker comes by and checks and sees Amanda like what is going on with your the place that you live here has darkened charcoal uh, fire here uh, you know and and of course the dragon had started breathing fire but she was keeping it from caretaker and then she ends up where the dragon is so big and blowing fire and she has to kill it. And caretaker had said, you know, anytime you need me, just call. And so here the dragon had gotten out of control and that's when he said, you need to be the one. You take the ax to the dragon rather than me. And so God holds us responsible to take out the sword of the spirit and to kill the dragons in our lives so that he can have freedom in it. It's his sword. It's he gives us the weapon. We just have to use it. Amen. I think if you remember, he, the caretaker threw the hatchet mm-hmm. through his hatchet to Amanda, and then Amanda picked up it. So it's my, you know, it's my cooperation with God's operation. Leads to a Jesus revelation, if I can say it that way. You know, sorry for these little things. I speak a lot, so I have to do these one-liners. But in any event, the, that's a really powerful thing. You know, Alan, I was thinking of one example and following on with Polly's story. I've got a great story guy here in, in town in Phoenix, Arizona, where we live. And great guy, led him to the Lord, led his wife to the Lord, married them. They flew us over to Hawaii to marry them. That was pretty special. Mm-hmm. And with them all these years, he was on our board and everything like that. And he... He got in a little bit of a, a financial uh, problem, and uh, you know he was going to sell his business, and so he asked me to make a, a loan, pretty big loan, for just three weeks. And you know I had my father look at it, the CPA, and they all said, "Well, it looks okay. You know, it's a little bit, it's like a big mom and pop operation mm-hmm. type mm-hmm. of thing, you know, and and so forth." And all this time, it's like the Lord was like saying. Ed, please do not do what you're mm-hmm. about to do. Mm-hmm. Please, 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 please. And see, my pastoral gift led me to rather, over, than, huh? rather than the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, see, I was led. And see, your gift, maybe a gift can be a good thing, but right. that can be an idol too. Mm-hmm. I was letting my gift of pastoral care mm-hmm. lead me. My gift led me rather than God led me. Wow. Right. And see, that's a huge distinction. I was tied to that gift more than I was to God. And mm-hmm. I think many 
especially oh, people in the church do that. They left their gift. Right. Um, you know, they're at church all the time serving, and right. they're leaving their kids and all right. that. Their gift motivates them rather than God motivating them. Yeah. And and so, I, I, Polly, I made this loan to them, and, and then right after that, you know, uh, 2008 hit and within weeks, and then he – went out of business and mm. I lost a huge sum of money and mm. I, I'm going, God, you know, what, where were what, you? Yeah, huh? What's the deal? You know, and God says, well, I told you not to do it. He's, I said, but God, something, you know, he was in trouble. Somebody needed to help him. God said, yeah, I, I already had somebody planned, but you got in the way. Mm. Oh my goodness. Wow. And uh, you know what that's I'm saying? And see, that's this whole idea of even a good thing can become your that's that, right. That, that thing. And that was, I learned a lesson. Never mm. be led by your gift. And most, unfortunately, most people are who are Christians. They get, they're in that use me stage. Mm. You know, right. there's four stages to Christianity. First stage is give me. That's where God is <laughs> Santa Claus. You know, he's Santa Claus. Give me, give me, give me, give me. Second stage is use me. You're so happy you got something. You know, you, all, you every time you pray, you get the first place in the parking lot. You know, <laughs> now later on when you're my age, been around with God 40 years, you get the last place. Okay, but in any event, so it's the give. You got give me and then use me, and then that's the second one. Everybody wants to be used. I see a lot of people on that stage, mm-hmm. and again. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just part of the process. This this whole thing is a process, not an event. Getting healed, you know, trust, moving from trust impaired to trust repaired to trust prepared. It's not an event. It's a process with little events along the way. So this is this whole thing's a process. So, but in any event, this you have that process. So they're at their use me stage, and you see them, and they're real zealous, and they shout to the Lord, and they, you know, and then all of a sudden they run into the third stage, which is where God says, "I'm going to break you. Mm-hmm. You're doing the right thing, but for the wrong reasons." It's flesh-based. You're doing the right thing, but it's flesh-based. And if it's flesh-based, it's a race because it's not graced. And so then God breaks you, and that's when you, you kind of you have these situations where God begins you to mold you, move you from Christ and you to you in Christ. And the last stage is make me. Mm-hmm. See, make me who you want me to be. Make me, And that's where you enter into that amazing fraternity of mm-hmm. content in all circumstances. You sit back and, you know, you aren't even going to fall for what you used to fall for because you're already a little bit wiser. But so when people are at those first two stages, I always said, I'm real careful. I don't judge them because I've been there, done that. I got the T-shirt. This is the process, not an event. So what happens was Amanda was just, uh, how do you say, enticed this mm. this little thing. Um, I remember the word she, she said, just for a while, perhaps I can tame it. And that's everybody thinks. I'll just have, I mean, that guy just really violated me. You know, he lied to me. And I just want to have that, this feeling I'm having for mm. revenge just for a little while. But I'll tame it. Mm. You know, I'll mm. tame it. And, dude, you don't tame it. It tames mm-hmm. you. You know what I'm saying? And I do. if yeah. you let it grow. And that's why, you know, and I think that the enemy has created a green piece for dragons. You know what I'm saying? That don't kill that dragon. You know, you're killing something. No, no. Kill the dragon when it's small. You're going to have to kill it sooner or later. You might no matter well, how cute you, you, the dragon you, yeah, is, yeah. right, Ed? I mean. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, this isn't a comment on the green deal, but what I'm saying is that. The enemy just says, oh, you just let it grow. I mean, you're right. You deserve that, you know. And the truth is blame shifting is just shame shifting. Whenever I see anybody that's blame shifting, I know right away what's going on. They're naked and ashamed. Yeah. 
and they're blind. Yeah. They're trying to buy. Go, they they're down at Macy's and they just bought a, a brand new fig leaf and the latest fashion. Mm-hmm. And really, they're naked. And see, lies have to be covered up, but the truth can run around naked. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's one of your your four items here. Is why are you hiding the dragon eggs, right? Mm-hmm. And it just seems like a lot of times we don't know how to identify what we've picked up here. This idol, this sin, this dragon egg. But maybe we start to realize like, oh, I may have a problem with this if I start hiding it, if I start covering it up. And that mm-hmm. seems a big awareness. Well, thing. We, we hide things that we're ashamed of. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's what Adam and Eve did. I mean, Ed was just talking about the fig leaf. Yeah, we want to hide our nakedness. We want to hide the things that, that we're ashamed of. And initially, we start out doing something openly because we have no guilt about it. But once we know that it's gotten out of control, we want to cover it up. We're, we're ashamed of it. And so, mm-hmm. so we hide it. The first time we go out drinking with our friends and get a buzz going, it's fun. You know, it's great. But it, once we're a full-blown alcoholic, you know, we become ashamed of it. We want to hide it. So we hide the stuff that we're ashamed of. And that's what Amanda does with her dragon egg. A lot of people are in that type of situation. And they were in those, you know, where the business partner betrayed them or the pastor did or the, and that, that's a dragon. And I can tell you this, it's a lot easier not to get in the trap than to get out of the trap once you're in the trap. It takes a lot less energy. It's a lot, like Polly was saying, it's a lot better to get it now while it's small and manageable. And I, I just, it's, I'm amazed. I mean, she thought in her mind, and it's, this is in the story again, what harm is one small dragon? And yet, you know, every grave and every graveyard in the world that has ever had been or ever will be is evidence that that dragon can be a problem. Dr. Ed Delf wrapping up today's show with wise words. Don't we all think that? I mean, what harm will this one little, you fill in the blank, do? What will this one thing do? It reminds me of what the Apostle James says in the first chapter of James. He writes, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And remember, when you're being tempted, don't say God is tempting me because God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and and drag us away. And these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Well, next week we'll get a rapid fire recap from all these dragon egg lessons. These are quick bite-sized statements that will definitely give you an aha moment or two. Well, to learn more about Dr. Ed Delph, you can visit nationstrategy.com and to visit Alan and Polly Heller, head over to walkandtalk.org. Now there you'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book along with the newly revised application guide. This new guide is great for your family, for church, or for your small group as well. And lastly, 
don't forget to sign up for one of Alan's upcoming trust webinars. And once again, you can do that at walkandtalk.org. On behalf of Alan, Polly, and Ed, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week. I choose to be
71% of teens have admitted to hiding what they do online from their parents. This is just one of the many, many reasons I believe it's so important to protect all of our devices with covenant eyes. I've been using it for years, and if you do not have protection on all of your uh, computers and cell phones and tablets, let me encourage you, visit covenanteyes.com today. Receive a 30-day free trial when you use my name, Dustin Daniels with no spaces in that promo box. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Five Principles of True Worship. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. I'm wondering how many times you look at yourself a day. I mean, some people, if there's a window they can look at, they're preening. If there's a mirror, they stop. You know, if there, how many times? It would be interesting to keep track of that. Something you intend to post and uh, for the whole world to see. We're all, you know, totally captivated by it. How many posts, how many pictures of ourselves we put out the cure for self-centeredness and I think that's where the world is and maybe a lot of us are honest is worship that's the cure for self-centeredness I want to share with you something that a friend of mine Skip Heitzig he's the pastor of Calvary Albuquerque he said worship is one of the most selfless experiences and expressions you could ever be engaged in Worship is all about shifting the focus. It's all about moving the focus off of ourselves and onto another. In a culture that says it's all about me, a worship culture says it's all about him. So I want to see us continue to cultivate a worship culture at Calvary. When we get together, it's really all about him, not all about me. And I'm just going to say as an aside, it's not all about what I get out of worship. It's all about what I give to him because it's all about Jesus. And so I want to look at the five principles of true worship. And the first principle is that worship is fundamental. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the last few verses of the second chapter give us an insight into the life of the early church. I don't know that it was... Like they said, let's write a paper about what life in the early church is like. Let's write a paper about uh, what the fundamental life 
is in the church, but it sure, it sure is here. It's loud and clear. Acts 2.42, and we'll read 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, we'd say Bible study, and fellowship to the breaking of bread, that would be uh, eating together and um, sharing the Lord's Supper, and praising God, oh, and to prayer. And then verse 47 says, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they studied the word together, they ate together, they prayed together, they shared the gospel together, they are evangelizing that, and they took care of one another, and they praised and worshiped God together. So one of the foundational, fundamental parts of the church is worship. But what about the church in heaven? There is a a great eternal church in heaven. I want you to look at Revelation chapter 4. Now we're looking at the church in heaven. Verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. Before the throne there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, read, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, is, and is to come. So this is going constantly in heaven. It says they never cease to say that. Let's look at the book of Revelation. There are some words that God likes repeated, like hallelujah, glory, praise. You know, these are all words, and it's okay. Hey, we're just practicing, right? And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever. They cast their thrones before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things And by your will, they existed and were created. So here is a church in heaven. And in the church of heaven, there is worship going on. Worship is not just fundamental for the church on earth, but it's going on in heaven right now. What is the center of all this activity in heaven? I mean, who? I should say it's God. Everything from the lights, from the sound, the staging, the props, the fragrances are designed to put God on display and to bring God to the forefront, all right? It's all about glorifying God. And God is in worship, as we're going to see next week. God is into all those things. God likes sound. God likes lights. God likes 
a thunder, God likes smell, God likes all of these things that we might not be used to, but it's all going to be in heaven. Worship is about God, and worship is about attention. Who's got your attention? And as I'm reading Revelation 4 and then looking at Revelation 5, I'm seeing that God has everybody's attention. When you think about it, there are a lot of things that we do on earth that we won't be doing in heaven. But worship is one thing that we do on earth that we are going to keep doing in heaven. Amen? I mean, you're not going to be evangelizing in heaven. There's nobody to get saved in heaven. You're not going to be praying for the sick in heaven. There's nobody going to be sick. There isn't going to be anybody raised from the dead in heaven. You know, all those things have passed away. But one thing we know we're going to do is worship. Let's get a head start. Amen? I think we just forget This is training for eternity. So worship is fundamental. I don't think I really need to uh, set on that much more. But it's fundamental to the life of the church. And it's not something that just should be, well, we sing two hymns and that's it. And let's just get this over with so we can get to the real stuff. You know, of course we put a high priority on the Word of God here. But we also have to understand that the worship is part of our giving uh, God the worth that he is due, and it's actually training for heaven. And there's more to talk about down the line on all of that. Well, let me give you a second principle. And this is something I want to spend some time on tonight, and that is that worship is intellectual. Much of pagan worship involved moving people into an emotional frenzy. I think of the priests of Baal during the time of Elijah. You remember there. In, uh, it's recorded in 1 Kings 18, where you have the prophets of Baal and you have Elijah on top of Mount Carmel. The whole, you know, all the reps, representatives from Israel are gathered together and, and Elijah's saying, okay, choose this day whom you're going to serve. Who's going to be your God? If it's God, then worship him. If it's Baal, then worship him. But enough of this, one foot in, one foot out. Enough of this, you know, you're trying to mix the two together. Uh, that's not going to do in our New Testament, in terms of, look, if Jesus says you can't love him and anything else, it's got to be him and him alone, correct? And so the prophets of Baal, they're up there and on top of the mount, and for 12 hours, they're dancing around the altar, working themselves up into a frenzy for 12 hours. Baal was the sun god, and so the sun at Midday at its height ought to be when he would show his strength the greatest, right? Midday passes, nothing happens. They continue to plead. They started crying more out to Baal. Elijah couldn't help but make a a really kind of crude remark. He says, well, where is your God right now? Is he? And the Hebrew says, where is he? You know, is he out for a while? They were just in a frenzy. Then they begin cutting themselves thinking that if they hurt themselves and they're in pain and the blood is running down their bodies, that this will get their God's attention. And of course, uh, the God, the agreement was it answers by fire and consumes the sacrifice would prove that he is God indeed and nothing happened. And then Elijah just comes and, and he has a very short prayer after he had drenched the altar with water so there could be no imagination that he had somehow, you know, caused the fire to happen through some trickery 
It was absolutely drenched. The wood was drenched. The sacrifice was on the altar. And he just prayed a very short prayer, like I said. And God answered by fire. Fire came down, consumed the sacrifice, consumed the wood, and consumed the rocks. And there's nothing but like this pit in the ground. And then the prophets of Baal were dispatched. So true worship is not like pagan worship where people have to be, you know, worked up into a frenzy. Uh, One ancient historian, Lucian, describes other worship practices in ancient world. I'm quoting him. It says, Spectators would sometimes lose control and join in frenzied worship of the goddess by castrating themselves and then running wildly through the street. This was the only way to become a priest of the goddess. I just want you to know to the lengths people would go to try to get their God's attention. You don't have to do that, of course, with the true and living God. God doesn't need us to do anything to get his attention. God knows where we are. God sees our heart. And true worship involves the mind. The worship of these pagan deities and a lot of worship today is not mind engaging. But true worship involves the intellect. True worship is an intellectual response to knowing and understanding God. That is one of the principles of true worship. It's intellectual. Now, it's not all intellectual, but this is an important piece of it. True worship involves thinking, reasoning, discovering, studying, meditating on the character and the nature of God. It's all of these things. It's not what you're doing right now is true worship. Did you know that? Oh, I love the songs we were singing before. That's part of worship we'll talk about later. But what you're doing right now is true worship. It's one of the principles because true worship is intellectual and you're going to worship more as you know God more. You're going to worship better as you know God better. Who is God? What has he done? How can I know him? Jesus said that we are to worship God in spirit who can finish it and in truth. So here's a great balance. We worship in spirit, and we also worship in truth. There is this balance, because an uninformed worship can be really weird. And a spiritless worship is like eating shredded wheat without milk. So the Lord wants the balance. Uninformed worship leads to people. Okay, hear my heart. I'm nobody's critic like you know, who am I? But I have to say, when people are running around barking in a sanctuary and claiming it's the Holy Spirit, I pause, or they're running around and they're laughing uncontrollably. I love humor, though. You know, I, I can laugh. But when that is declared to be a manifestation of the Holy Spirit and part of worship, Again, I have to pause because I go back and I think, well, worship is also intellectual. And so that part of me has to be informed by the Bible. And I say, okay, if I'm going to do something in worship, where is it in the Bible? Because that's part of that being informed and understanding the character of God. And I have to say this too, that when the Holy Spirit is present, he never draws attention to himself. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he will point people to me, and he will point people to the Father. The Holy Spirit doesn't want any attention. 
He never draws attention to himself. Now, don't go too far and say, well, then I'll never raise my hands. I'll never do it. We're not talking about that. We're just talking about some really strange things that can be blamed on the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going, uh, no, that's not me. That's probably the flesh. That's just somebody's flesh out of control. Given the right frenzy, those things can happen. Jesus said we're to worship God in spirit and in truth. Both. That's why I think good worship music is intellectual as well. It has good theology is what I mean. I can remember singing songs even when I was a kid that were kid songs that have really bad theology. And there are songs that could be sung that are really nice, melodic songs, but the theology is not right. What I appreciate about our worship leaders, our worship pastors, is that they are extremely careful to choose songs and hymns and psalms you know, that are biblically sound. And it's not just because I ask them to do it. They do it because they know that worship is intellectual. One of the principles of worship is it's intellectual and it needs to be informed by the Word of God. So, you know, I think of one hymn that we don't sing a lot in its original uh, version, but I think of uh, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest strain, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is seeking sin. Amazing grace. You think of the words there. And then we, we have our newer songs that we sing, and they're good theology, And many songs are God-directed. Now, some people say they all have to be God-directed. We could never say anything about ourselves when we sing. That's ridiculous, too, because if you read David's psalms, you got some psalms where David, his song is all directed toward God and God's attributes, right? And then you have other songs where David's whining or David's crying, and, and there's still songs he wrote to God. So don't be legalists when it comes to that stuff. But I do think that we need to be careful that we are worshiping in spirit and in truth. And this is why in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, want to look there? Jesus said something very important. As soon as you see it, you'll remember. He was asked a theological question, and as our Lord always did, he has the perfect answer. It was, if you have any questions, Google Jesus. Amen. What's the first, the great commandment? And Jesus responds in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, saying, This is it, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. See, part of loving God is with our what? Minds. It's really important to realize I show God my love by my thinking and what I learn. And so when you're going to seminary, you're worshiping God because you're learning more about God. When you come here and it's just this part of our service, you're still worshiping God because you're learning, you're meditating, you're observing about the Word and you're learning more about God. When you go to to Bible college or Bible Institute, you are worshiping God. That's kind of cool to think. Because, as I said, you're thinking, reasoning, discovering, studying, meditating on the nature and character of God, and that is foundational because it is part of worship. It is intellectual. That's part of the principles of worship. Worshipful is a mindful act. It is 
to be thoughtful, it is to be informed, it is to be a truth-filled response to who we know God to be and who we are learning God to be. I have noticed that my worship is different than it was 20 years ago. I probably don't sing anymore every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Oh, really? It doesn't seem that way some days to me. I know the theology of it, but I don't know. Is that a little trite? I, it might be. So some of my worship is different. I think my worship is deeper because I've walked with the Lord. I know more about the Lord. I know the Lord more, uh, I've had more experience with him. And so my worship changes. And so the more you know, the more your worship is going to be informed. Worship is a response, too, to what God has done. Jump back to the book of Revelation again. And we're in the middle of the tribulation here, basically, in Revelation 15. And I think there is, though, a significant portion of a verse in chapter 15. And it's the last half of the fourth verse. Well, we do all the verse, I guess. It says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. And then, again, it's okay to read whatever translation. All nations will come and worship you, what? For your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, a lot of the acts here are the judgments that are coming upon the world. But see, the world worships when they see God's actions and they see God's doings. And that is part of our worship is a response. I really believe that God initiates our worship. You know, God, we, we learn and I respond. There, there's time after a message. I don't want to leave. I've got, I want to sing something. I want to express what's inside of me because I just learned something cooler about God. How about you guys? We worship God as creator. I mean, this is something that we learn, you know. Maybe you're a brand new believer in, and you've been raised in the evolutionary theory or hypothesis, you know, and all of a sudden now you're learning that, no, you're fearfully and wonderfully made, not evolved, that you were created by God and there's a purpose for you and you're realizing God created the whole world and you can, by looking at the heavens and looking at the earth, realize that there's a creator God. And now you're singing something like, oh Lord my God, when I survey an awesome wonder, you know, all the worlds that you've made. I mean, that is a response. That's why people like that song, then sings my soul. I don't mean to be just quoting old songs. I just can't remember new words. That's my problem. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we were on this cruise, and it was a beautiful room, everything we had, except the pulpit was on rollers. <laughs> I haven't had a chance to tell you this. The pulpit was on rollers. And one of the nights, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't the Titanic night or anything, but I mean, it was, you know, you were, brother, it was playing the keys, you know, he was, he was playing the keys with this, having to stabilize himself at the same time, you know, and, and they're not even where they were, the last chord, you know, so it was kind of funny. But I, I leaned on the pulpit and it rolled. <laughs> And then as I stand there, it would roll. And it was like, I almost fell back uh, at one time. So the next time, somebody had really nicely weighted the thing down so it couldn't move. But that was weird. My point being, what was the point? What was it all about? The pulpit. (sighs) Words. Remembering words. So the strange thing about this room, really nice room, but they had... Uh, television, you know, 
televisions that they would put the words on that were only about this big, but they put them way to the sides. I mean, not like this, way over there. So if you're sitting like this, you literally have to turn your head to see the words, and then the words are only this tall. All right. So I cannot remember all the words to songs. I'm always singing the wrong words when the words are up there, okay, and I can see them. I do. I'm just like, my family teases me. It's like, Dad, I'm going, oh. You know, I always make... Well, then we sang some songs that had some words that were pretty, like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, we were all lost, you know. I just told them to sing bananas, bananas, because if, you, if you're in a choir and you don't know the words, and if you just sing banana, it looks like you're singing a word. Banana. But, but we worship God as a response to who He is. And that was probably a rabbit trail, but we'll bring it back. To Psalm 139, verse 14, which says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. I praise you as my creator. See, that's an informed mind. We also praise God for his unfailing love. We realize, hey, you never fail me. We worship God for his character qualities. And and this is where I think worship dramatically, exponentially expands the more you study the attributes of God, the character of God, the characteristics of God. Now, I'll use some big words, and I'll explain them, but you're going to hear the words as you grow in the Lord. One is, man, the more I know about the omnipresence of God, the more I am in wonder and worship. That means that God is everywhere all the time. He's just as much with us right now as he is with believers everywhere else in the world. His omnipotence, which means his all-powerful strength. The more I study about that, the more I see how Jesus is the glue of the, literally, the glue of the universe, holding everything together by his power, I'm just, it blows my mind. And it causes me to just want to worship him. The more I know about his omniscience, he knows everything. There's nothing for God to learn, past, present, or future, that he is faithful in all his ways, that he's loving, that he's just. For his judgments are true. I thank God for his judgments, for his holiness, his grace, his mercy, for sovereignty, his transcendence, his overall, his goodness. I mean, the attributes go on and on and on, and you can read in your Bible about who God is and get out of this mode that, well, God, well, who is he? What are his attributes? What are his characteristics? And then you claim it. God, I thank you that you are a God of grace. I thank you that you are a sovereign God because you are in control of this situation. And the more you know, the more there is to praise God. You know, when Luther's singing, a mighty fortress is our God, he's, he's thinking, Lord, you're transcendent. Lord, you are sovereign. Lord, you are everywhere at one time. You are a God of protection. I mean, he's thinking, he's full of theology. And the more you know about God, the more you worship. I want to say this too, that it's very important that we, with Knowing the, the second principle of worship is that we worship God intellectually or intelligently, is that we worship God in the face of pain and loss. You must know and believe the truth that God is in control, that God loves you, that God has a plan for your life, and you must know and believe that in his eternal sovereign plan, he is working all things together for good. You must understand that because we're living in a fallen, sinful world, bad things happen to good people. We are casualties. 
We get wounded, we get shot, but that's the closest thing to hell we ever get. In the face of tragedy, pain, and loss, we must continue to worship God. You know, we've shared what what happened with our daughter, um, you know, pieces and and it's her story and we haven't ever shared the whole deal uh, for the sake of her privacy and our protection but when our daughter went through a terrible time with horrific things done to her it it really shattered our family in a lot of ways and when I found out um, they didn't want me to know everything and then I read the NCIS investigation report of what had been done to her I exploded like every dad would I didn't say, praise you, Lord, I was a dad who wanted to kill the person. And, you know, I don't care what you think about that. I I wanted to kill the person. So I know what that feels like. I've never hated more in my entire life. I don't think I could have hated anymore. I took time off because I thought, well, how can I feel like this and teach, you know? I didn't feel like I was in sin. I just thought, like, I'm I'm devastated. My attitude's not right. My family's hurt. I need to get away. But I do remember coming back and things were not, you couldn't see good coming out of it. And of course, though I know intellectually, and part of my worship is intellectual, but when we came back, we were sitting in the back because I couldn't even, I don't think I taught, I, I couldn't come anywhere near the front I was just and the worship team began singing um, the song that the chorus is for you are good for you are good for you are good to me and I couldn't sing those words it was hard to sing those words because of the pain and loss and grief though intellectually I could stand there and I did not question that God is good and God is good to me. I was worshiping in my mind. I couldn't sing. I couldn't get the words out. I think God accepted that worship. And it was a while before I could sing, you know, and, and get words out. It was just a hard time for my heart. King David demonstrated what it means to worship God in the face of pain and loss of his baby boy. Remember, his little boy died. And I mean, it, it, to make matters worse, it was because of his sin. I can't imagine anything worse than the death of a child. And, and yet, David grieved. He got up, he washed his face. And then in 1 Samuel twelve twenty, it says, he went to the temple and he worshiped God. I went to the temple, so to speak. I was there. God knew what was in my heart. God said, you know what? You're hurting God. Oh, and you know what God spoke to me when I couldn't sing? God spoke to me and it really healed that moment. God said, you're angry right now? Yes. God's, and you're a father and you're angrier right now? I said, yes, he says. I'm angrier than you are. That just kind of lifted me. I thought, well, you know what? Of course he would understand this. He's her father in heaven, right? So get up, wash your face, get to the temple, worship God. David Wagner has said, it is so important that in times of pain and loss, We move toward God rather than away from him. David showed us that we have to say, I feel so much pain, I'm in agony, but I'm going to go to God because I need him more now than ever. Worship is intellectual. That doesn't mean that intellect doesn't come without feeling. But because you know and you are growing and you're learning more and more about who God is, and you're getting more of a track record with God, 
you're able to stabilize yourself. And probably this intellectual part of worship is what stabilizes the worship the most. It makes it right. And I, I prayed earlier, you know, that, that the Lord would speak specifically to somebody. I mean, you could say that, of course, God speaking to everybody, but really specifically a, a word to somebody and I think it was a thing here at the very end with David and with the difficulty that it is to press on in the face of pain. I just want to encourage you, whomever you may be, to press on and to understand that you need God more right now than you've ever needed him before. To worship God as best as you can right now, not to stay away, to press in as close as you can to your Father in heaven. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that we can worship you, the true and the living God, that we do not have to approach you in some frenzy. We don't have to work up emotions. We don't have to somehow get your attention. You're there. You're with us. You're always waiting. And that our worship is pleasing to you. We understand how foundational, how fundamental this principle is for the church. And we want to be a church of worshipers, a community of worshipers, where you're put first, where we think of you and what would be good for you, pleasing to you. And Lord, we also thank you that there is a foundation for our worship and that we, we worship you in spirit and in truth. Let's all grow in truth. Help us all to understand you, your characteristics, your character more. Let's just Take us on that tour of who you are. And let's capture those images. In Jesus' name, amen.
And when I think that God his Son not sparing sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing he bled and died to take away my sin when Christ shall come with shout of admiration and take me home what joy shall fill my heart then I shall bow in humble We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.